Speak softly loud and hold me warm against your heart. Good evening, everyone, again. This is our fifth episode. I can't believe we already have five episodes out there, and I hope you're enjoying them. You are listening to Hollywood Godfather Podcast. My name is Gianni Russo, the alias Carlo Rizzi to most of you. <laughs> I'm seated here again with my partner, Pat Picciarelli, who helped me write this marvelous book called Hollywood Godfather, and our young protege, who promises us she's going to have a lot more to say because she's asking me so many questions when we get off the air. <laughs> I, I said, why didn't you ask me while we were on? And I, I, my understanding is with my, my uh, director, Mr. Pat Picciarelli, that we're going back to 59th Street. We are. You know, we should, we're going we're gonna to jump in chronologically. Now, when last we left the adventures of Johnny Russo, you're, you're like 13 years old, Frank Costello takes you under his wing. You're his protege, uh, and you're going to work for him. You have no idea what you're going to be doing, but you're going to be doing something, not selling pens. That's obvious. Right. So start there. And what did you do for that? I mean, you, you're, you're, you know, I can picture myself at 13 years old. What am I going to be doing if I was in your place? And why would they trust the 13-year-old, and what did they have you doing? Well, I, I, at first, all those questions were running through my head. But here's a guy that just gave me $200 and took my ballpoint pens from me, and I was out of business. I mean, he, <laughs> he took about $18 worth of pens, and he gave me $200. I don't care what he wanted me to do. I mean, a lot of money back then. Oh, my God. It's like $2,000 to me yeah, right, right. at that time. So as, I, as we left off, he told me to meet him under the clock at the Waldorf Astoria, which obviously is an iconic building on Park Avenue, still there. They're remodeling it and supposedly opening it in another year, which is going to be interesting because I, I know some of the people who bought it, fortunately, out of China. And uh, they're leaving all the lobby and all that because the New York Historical Society got involved. And it was such iconic memorial tribute to the, to the you know, architecture and everything. So they did keep that. Me, selfishly, I can't wait to go sit under the clock and just reminisce. <laughs> and hopefully, there's rumors we're going to be turning this book into a motion picture. It would be great to have that as a location because oh, it would be a great asset. So take me. I'm taking you now to the Waldorf Astoria. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. I just arrived, and I'm sitting under the clock. And I didn't need to look at a watch. I didn't have one anyway. The clock was ticking over my head. <laughs> and the, the 11 bells went off, and there was nobody there. And then a few minutes later, the gentleman that I saw him with, that I got to be introduced to that day, his nickname was Blackie. And he was constantly with Frank. Sometimes there was even more than that. So he told me that, come on, he led me over to, to for me to get to know this would be Peacock Alley, and I'd be meeting there until 1973, wow. until, until he died, Frank. And, um, and I mean, always a gentleman. I, I went there, and he, he motioned for me to sit down, and um, he said, I'm glad you're here, this, that, and the other, and just small talk and whatever, and you, do you have anything to eat? And I told him I ate breakfast and all that. And then he said, oh, here's what your daily duty's gonna be. He said, I got a lot of locations 
that I need envelopes picked up at and dropped off to certain addresses. You can't not know where you're going. These are very important messages and envelopes that have to be delivered. I said, no problem with it. He said, I'd rather you don't write anything down. Hmm. And I'm saying to myself, okay, <laughs> why, why don't you ever write it down? And then I found out later, because God forbid you got pinched or somebody that was not on his payroll didn't know who I was, and they find these slips and addresses, I would be disclosing so many bookmaking parlors and barber shops that were taking numbers. So the Upper East Side, which he gave me just to collect, was, I mean, a, a tremendous amount of trust. But I found out later wh why, because unbeknownst to me, he told Carlo Gambino about this guy, do you know him, and gave him my name, he's from your neighborhood, and he knows our friend that sent us to America, Angelo Russo, who's his great uncle. So there was more now of just not some kid. But I didn't find out till later, because I was doing everything diligently, being on time, as I always am anyway. And I never took advantage of the man, you know, with money or anything. I mean, sometimes you'd say, here's $500, go, go, to go have some fun. But give us a typical day. My, 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 typical, my typical day that day, he told me where to go, and they just gave me, he said, do associations, like uh, this address. And you know, he said, don't ever mention the street name, remember the address, 223. It would be so rare that there'd be a 223 in two different streets, and we'd make sure that there isn't, he said, because that's how they come in. So an envelope had 223, they knew what room it came from and who, who was in that place. Like this particular place where we're broadcasting out had 24 phone rooms, 24 phone lines. And then there was a count room where they put stuff together. People that were doing the numbers in this area would drop here. So there was all these satellite offices. And then at, towards the end of the day, after the last race at, at anywhere, they would give me the slips and I would start collecting slips from different barber shops like the Sherry Netherlands, the Plaza Hotel, different, uh, the St. Regis Hotel. And were these slips, what were they, betting slips for the horse races? Is exactly, that that's okay. where they were. They, they were the betting slippers, slips that these bookmakers took. So the, the way they set this up was so interesting because uh, for the common people that don't know about the numbers, they used to have a thing where even housewives, for, for five cents, you could bet on a number one to 10. There's no 10, one to nine, okay? And that was based on the silks in the race. I never knew this. But for that nickel, that housewife, if the nine horse came in, you get $27. $27 was a lot of money in those right. days. And so that's how it was. So either it was the numbers or horse bets and that's what this was all about. And the, the way it was set up was amazing and basically foolproof. Because the, the better who took the bet here by phone, a lot of people called in. And that, that guy on phone seven would put P7, how much the bet was, who the customer was, you know, maybe a name, maybe initials, and the amount. And then it would all go to the account room. 
the count room at the end of the day would calculate all those slips and then by that morning I would go pick up the money that would have to go let's say to phone number seven and if he had two winners I had $55 in cash for him in envelopes for the two names that went for it and that's what it was about so I'd be walking around casually there was no you know be there any time because when post time came they stopped taking bets on the second race or the third race the fourth race and the post time was written in the newspapers it was, I mean, and that's when you're playing silks. Then they had the three number combination, which was the last three numbers of the total handling of the track they were using for this season, which was brilliant too because you couldn't fix it. Mm-hmm. So the total handling, let's say, at Aqueduct at the end of the ninth race, once that was calculated, that's the number of the day. And you could bet that the same way. A nickel gets you twenty-seven dollars. Five dollars gets you two hundred and seventy dollars. You know that's uh, that's what the numbers were. So they used to play silks, numbers, and straight horses, and that's what built a lot of a lot of states and major cities. And I mean, they were doing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that turned into millions, and uh, everybody, you know is uh, somewhat of a gambler. I mean, look, look at the lotto, look at the, everybody's playing something. Every bodega has, that's, so the, basically these guys created that wow. indirectly. Well, so what's the most money you'd, you'd have on you in a day? At that time? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm basically on the weekends it was always more, I'd have, you know, 20, 30,000 on me. But, yes. and then I'd go to the Wyndham Motel. See, by the time I got to the Plaza Hotel, see, I, then the Plaza Hotel, it's interesting because I, I take my kids there. They changed the configuration, obviously, because they made a residency and a hotel. But in the lobby, when they closed off the walls and the, the gallery upstairs, it was like one floor gallery, a balcony, that's where the beauty salon and the barbershop was. So I'd go up those stairs, and that's where the barbershop was. And people off the street, even the doorman, they all bet with that guy. You know, let's say Joe the Barber. And uh, so I'd go to him. He'd be my last guy. So I'd go all up and down every hotel that's been here forever. The Carlisle, St. Regis. And just that's my, it was easy. Take a nice stroll. And that was this little kid with a gimp. And, and nobody's going to stop me. <laughs> but then, then I, I started, uh, you know, then I got creative a little too. Did you fall over, Pat? What's that? Pat, what's going on not, over there? I'm not moving anything. I'm sitting here still. What is that? I am not sure. Wow. Well, it, whatever it is, it's gone now. It's probably Jimmy Kahn upstairs making noise. <laughs> <laughs> got a long memory, that guy, Kahn. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's basically what I used to do every day. And then one thing I, I was totally respectful about was the respect he had and the admiration and love he truly had for his family. He went home every night for dinner, every night, and then come back out eight eight thirty, and then you know, I used to be able. I, I had so many phone numbers I can call because we had no cell phones, but I would call you know the Copa, and ask you know, uh, did Mr. C say he wanted me? 
and they'd say, yeah, come by, whatever. They'd either have an envelope for me or a, a message to go somewhere, and I did that, and a lot of nights I didn't do anything. And then, but uh, it, it was so, I mean, imagine me, and I'm at the Copacabana. I mean, every major star in the world. I remember the first time that I met Frank Sinatra, because uh, it's in the book when I was first put in the hospital. I was there like three or four months. I got there in August, and my birthday was December 12th. And I heard on the radio that that was Sinatra's birthday. And that, and when they told me and described who Frank Sinatra was, I mean, I knew he was a great singer and all that, but that he was an Italian-American from Hoboken. His father was a steam fitter that became a fireman, a regular guy. So I had something to identify to and gave me hope and, and the will to get out of there because I watched all these other kids laying around. They had no will, they had nothing to, to live for. And I, I'm sure that if I didn't have Dolores Barone, who gave me that extra jello and that hug, and then finally got to the bed that I wanted was in the corner near the window, because I was in the middle of the ward. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I had to wait for people to die to get it, nobody was going home. Right. And then I finally got that, and then I saw, you know, what from the hospitals on the corner of first and third, 30th. So I was looking out and I could see the Empire State Building. I never saw these things. I was in Mulberry Street. We never left the, left the neighborhood, nobody. You go to school, go to church, that's where you are. Or, or take the ferry to Staten Island or something like that. But you know, we saw that from afar. This was the closest I ever got to it. And I can remember, that's one of the reasons I got so close to Marilyn Monroe. Because when I got to meet her and talk to her and spend some time, she was describing at 12 years of age her being in an orphanage and looking out the window of the orphanage and see Warner Brothers Studio and the big water tank that had the logo on it. Right. And she said, someday I'm gonna be on that studio lot. So we had all these comparisons. We both had problems with our fathers and it was all of that kind of a thing. But if it wasn't for you know this guy, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here, right here now. I'm doing this. So I, I don't even well, know. As you gained, as you gained their trust, and they saw you weren't a, a, a wise guy kid that you listened to direction, you were polite and respectful. You started to get more and more responsibilities. So, tell us, tell the viewers, the viewers, the listeners, uh, about some of these incidents, like that thing with the Yankees and the Copa. Oh my God! Yeah, well, that that was even. I mean, I I, was, I wasn't traveling yet. You were introducing when I started to go to Vegas in '59 and all that. But the the, the uh, Yankee thing was just because you said now I got, they got so familiar to me. I was all over the Copa anytime I wanted. I'd go down. You know, I'd go through the kitchen like everybody else. Movie stars would go through the kitchen. They didn't go through the front door because nobody realized the showroom. It was in the basement. Upstairs was the lounge. And then you go down to the showroom. So the easiest way to get to the showroom without going through the lounge and attracting a lot of attention would go through the kitchen. Everybody loved that. Oh, I'll take you through the kitchen. That was a big <laughs> deal. And go right to your table. So the one that you're talking about, though, because uh, Carmine told me, you should go downstairs. I just brought something back to, to Frank that I had to bring to him, an envelope. And uh, you should go downstairs. You're, you're like the Yankees? I said, I don't know anything about them. I know who the Yankees are, you know. 
And he said, well, they're all down there. So I, you know, he knew, he knew I knew how to act. I'm not going to run up to the Yankees. So I was, you know, in a corner where I could see it all. The show didn't start yet. And Sammy Davis Jr. was on, on the show. And, you know, I heard about him. And fantastic performer. And uh, so with that said, there's a bowling team sitting next to the Yankees. And the only reason I knew the bowling team, they all had bowling shirts on. I'm saying, <laughs> classy. Who are these clowns? Anyway, so the show comes on and everybody's drinking. Everybody's drinking. I mean, not me, but you know, it's a nightclub. Right. And um, they start heckling Sammy Davis Jr. Come on, nigga. Come on. That, all that kind of stuff. And the really rude Brooklyn, Brooklynese guys, you know, you could tell their, 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 their dialogue and their mannerisms. Even, I, I don't want to say their dialect, their Brooklyn dialect that was very uh, unique in itself, but really rude. And now, when they got into the black thing, one of the most famous black ball players was sitting at that table. With Mickey Mantle, I mean major guys. I mean, I, I, it was insane. So they got into a little scurry, <laughs> and the Yankees wrecked them because all the, these guys—they're playing a hundred something games. They're in great shape, right. and they're with their wives and all, which was added insult to injury. The whole place emptied out, and was made headlines, and. I the Yankees see. got locked up, right? I, I don't think they got locked up. They were going to lock them up. Nobody was going to lock them up. I think one maybe got locked up. And the, the guy that got hurt the worst was the, the ringleader, and they did a number on him. But with that said, I said to Mr. C when I saw him, because I used to go I used to go to Tort Shores every day, or, or uh, well, basically Tort Shores. 21, I, was, I didn't go until later on. But Tootshaw's was a great bar, and Toots himself was unique. But every day you could see Jackie Gleason was there, because that's where he used to tape his show, at the Gleason Theater on Broadway, which became the Sullivan Theater, which became Leno's, not Jay Leno, um, David Letterman's theater, and now it's Colbert. I saw that marquee change so many times in my life. <laughs> it's the same theater, though. But with that said, there was a big uh, investigation. So I said to Mr. C, what's going to happen? He said, don't worry about it. I said, well, they're really getting heavy on the Yankees on the news. He said, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough, a few days go by. Nobody testified against them. Nobody came in, made it, you know, the guy who was yelling the most just disappeared. Not dead, but I mean... Somebody obviously came and gave him an envelope. Yeah. But that was one of my first experiences in the Copa with, you know, it's that, you know, and if a combine didn't say to me, you know, you like the Yankees, well, but I didn't like them, but I, you know, I, I was never into sports, but I heard about them a lot because I'm laying in bed, listening to my radio, and everything was the Yankees, the Yankees, the Yankees. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, I, after that time, the intrigue of seeing the performers and everybody that was in that showroom was amazing. I mean, so that's how I met Sinatra 
Did I get into that story at all? No. The Sinatra experience, because he, basically he did save my life indirectly. Because when, when you're laying in a bed, it's not like today kids are in the hospital or anywhere. They have TV with a clicker, they got this, they got that, iPads. There was nothing there, nothing. And it was very sterile for a lot of reasons because they wanted anything that can, you know, create a disease or a germ or whatever it was that they were wondering this. They didn't know what this was about, this virus. So my whole thing was, you know, my birthday was December 12th. I was, very, you know, really depressed and crying all the time as a kid would. You would be. Anybody would be afraid. And um, they, on WNEW, mentioned today is Frank Sinatra's birthday. And they described who he was and all of that. And it was till year, years later that Sinatra was appearing at the Copa. And I had the opportunity. I was there for a sound check. And there he was. I was bringing in envelopes. And he, you know, he seen me all over the place. So it was not like some kid was wandering around in the Copa. So I went up to him. I said, Mr. Sinatra, you don't know this, but you saved my life. And he said, how did I do that? And I told him the story. And when I told him the story, his eyes teared up. And as I got to know him later on in life, this guy never had a sensitive bone in his body, I don't think, other than Ava Gardner. And then the last time, and it would be the last time, I saw him tear up. I happened to be in the audience at Caesar's Palace, the way he was performing, now we're talking 20, 30 years later. And his mother, his girlfriend, was late at the hairdressers in Palm Springs. And Frank said, Ma, I gotta go. Now, if you knew Sinatra's mother, Dolly, he had listened to her no matter what. He said, Ma, I have to go. I, I have a sound check. I got a show to lie open tonight. He said, all right. He said, I, listen, I got to go. I'll send the plane back for you. So she waited for her girlfriend. You know, it was a nice a private airport, air condition, all that. They drop him off, which is like 40, 40 minutes the most. He fly, they fly back. So he does the first show. And next to the last song, and I always sat stage right to him, which to you in the audience would be the left side. And why I sat there was because that's where the piano and the string section was. Not, you know, the, the drums were always in the middle of the horn section over there. And when he did his ballads, he liked, he favored that. So, and he'd talk to me from stage, you knew me now. Mm -hmm. And that night, before his last song, he said, I want the audience, if they will, to please, please pray for my mother. And he started crying. I never saw the Sinatra of all these years break down like that. He's my mother's missing, and we all knew she was dead. But they didn't want to tell him because he was already backstage, the audience was packed, and they said, what good is telling him now? Let him do his first show. So now, a lot of us knew, so we're all crying with him, because she's dead, man. And uh, he went backstage, and Jilly told him what you know happened, and that was it. What, what happened? Her, her plane hit a mountain coming out of Palm Springs. They get those fogs that come in, flash fogs, and she hit the mountain. 
which is so ironic though, because you know, I can only, years later, which is so weird, years later I'm with Dean Martin and reminiscing about his son who was in the Air National Guard because he didn't want him to go to war. He didn't want him to be a part of that Vietnam thing or whatever was going on. So he joined the Air National Guard. And the same thing happened. He hit the same mountain, maybe 20 feet from Frank Sinatra's mother and died. And when he died, Dean Martin died with him. And he couldn't, it was never the same, never. And I, I can remember being in Chicago with them all, and he just was so drunk, a lot of Percodan he was taking, and that's when they flew Liza Minnelli in for him to finish, her to finish the engagement for him, because he could, he, that was it, and after that, and uh, I have to say, Frank was not very nice about it. And uh, Dean died of a broken heart of his son, and the abandonment, abandonment of his closest friend, Frank Sinatra. And I used to go see him as much as I can at La Familia. He used to go right down the hill. He lived on Mountain Drive, right off of Sunset. And he'd come down the hill, his driver would took him down. And he'd get there around 4.30 in the afternoon, sit at the same booth. And at the, by that time, he, he was wearing glasses, horn, black horn rim glasses. But the, the glass lens looked like the bottom of a Coca-Cola bottle. That's how big, thick they were. But he'd sit down, they'd bring him his drink that he drank all the time. And by 5.30, he was laying on the table. And one day I was there and I couldn't believe the owner was telling people outside, come on in, Dean's here. The guy was sleeping. I grabbed this guy, I wanted to take his head off. I said, what are you, nuts? You're capitalizing on this guy. He's, he's down and out. Not that he was broke. He died as one of the richest men in Hollywood because he made a deal. He was a very smart guy. You know, he, uh, he made a deal with NBC when he was doing his show because he hated doing anything with a regiment other than play golf. And uh, they wanted him back. And he said, I don't want to get paid. And they said, what do you mean? He said, no, if I come back, I want uh, General Motors. I want uh, oh, um, GM stock. And that stock went to the moon. In fact, I, I see what's the name every once in a while. The guy who was the, um, the, uh, the chairman of the board for so many men, Jack Welsh. How do I remember these guys' names? <laughs> no idea. Jack Welsh. I used to see him at the Lesurg Bar. And we used to we, we'd tell stories because he saw me so many times with these guys. But uh, that's, I mean, when you talk about what Costello did for me, and you talk about my life and what the Copa meant to me, and the Copa was a block away on 60th. So this little nucleus of where I walked, I, you know, I, it was crazy. It was crazy, crazy times. And then, like as, as Pat said, then they, you know, they started traveling for them. And then I, I went to Vegas in 1959, and then went stayed there, flying back and forth for the next 30 years. I was back and forth there and I opened my club, which I closed in 89, after my run-in with Mr. Escobar's people. And what was that club called? <laughs> Gianni Russo State Street, a legend. You can yeah, go you, online. You told me, Johnny, uh, that your 
your love of clothes, your affinity for fashion came from Costello. Oh my God, yeah. Because as, as a, uh, one day we were, I came into Peacock Alley and he said to me, because I was, you know, I was starting to straighten up more now. I, I, I you know, my body was coming together, fortunately. How old were you at this time? Uh, probably about 15, 16. And then uh, he gave me a few dollars. He said, you should clean up your act a little bit. <laughs> I said, what act? I don't have an act. He's looking, oh, I said, you mean my clothes? So what's wrong with my clothes? They were always ironed, always pressed. But he told a story one time. He said, this kid had hair pants that they were cotton, but he ironed them so much they looked like they were mohair. <laughs> shiny? Yeah, shiny, shiny. So I remember that. They gave me a couple hundred dollars. He said, go to Layton's. They'll go. I said, they asked me, do I know where Layton's was? I said, of course. I was always looking in that window. That's, Layton's was before Brioni. That's where every performer, or uh, like like in California, it was side to war. But they, they had the best shoes, the best shirts. So I used to pass it all the time. So he gave me a couple hundred dollars. I went there, bought, you know, one suit and a sports coat, and I gave him change. And he said, no, I told you. I said, I can't do that, Mr. Steve. And, uh, but that's what he liked about me. I never took advantage of him, never. And he, t I don't know if he was testing me, but uh, I, then, then, Pat, you're talking about money. When I was coming back from Vegas, one time I, I, there, there was a million dollars in the bag. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and, and uh, what's the name? Uh, in fact, he, he played him in the, Don Rickles played him in Casino, and uh, he, he was the uh, count guy in the cage. He was the casino manager, and uh, he said to me, which he never did before, he'd give me the bag, and he didn't know where I was going because I had to stop in Chicago. Sometimes I'd stop in New Orleans and then come to New York. And he said to me, be careful with that bag, kid. He says, a million dollars in there. Oh, and I'm saying to myself, why did he tell me that? Like, he didn't mean anything. I was, if there was $10, I was, you know, they was delivering it. Yeah. But, so they gave you this stuff, these bags or whatever, envelopes, you would never look in them? No, I would never, no, never. Yeah. Nope, and that's, you know, and I was given a lot of envelopes, all different sizes, all, I mean, you know, but I would never open the envelopes. I would put them in my front pocket. In fact, what I did a couple of times, because I was carrying so many envelopes, I cut out my pockets and made them longer with the flower bags, because I, then I could put them, because I was thin, I could put them more in my, up, my upper thigh, in, in like my crotch because I didn't want these bulgy envelopes on the side. Right. So I put them in front of me. So what I did, I cut the bottom of my pocket and sewed the pockets longer so I could put more envelopes oh in there. Oh my God. No, no it's, uh, you had to do what you had to do, you know, it's right. crazy times. I, th I think you should tell everybody about the Barbizon, the night he sent you to the Barbizon Hotel, what the Barbizon was, and uh, the iconic status of the Barbizon. The Barbizon was probably was one of my most uh, wanted errands, at, especially because when I first went the first time, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And uh, in fact, uh, Carmine gave me the envelope. Who was Carmine? Carmine was the maitre d' at the, at the Copa for so many, many years, until it closed, actually. In fact, Carmine lived in this building. He had an apartment in here, too. There was a lot of people that lived in here, yeah, from the Cobra, because he owned the building. Mm -hmm. So um, 
Carmine said, you, do you know where the Barbizon Hotel is? I said, yeah, that's the, because I used to look all the time. It was an uh, all-female hotel that the prettiest women in the world coming in and out of it. Mm-hmm. It's on 63rd Street in Lexington Avenue. It's still there. Wow. It's still there. But it was, uh, it, most of the aristocrats sent their daughter there for finishing school. So he gives me an envelope. He says, when you get there, make sure you get there after 9 o'clock, you know, so if I walked or took a cab or whatever, he says, don't get there before nine. I didn't know what that meant. The curfew is at nine o'clock. These women had to be in their rooms. Now I'm talking about a women like Audrey Hepburn, Grace Kelly from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, the who's who from the surrounding areas were coming to New York for finishing school, modeling classes, acting lessons, mm-hmm. and the parents Loved that hotel because they felt they're in a, you know, it's a controlled atmosphere. They had to be in by nine. Mm-hmm. They had a bed check and all of that. So I, I said, okay, I'm gonna, I don't know what it was. I knew it was, a, I knew it was an all-female hotel. Mm-hmm. So I waited till nine o'clock. I went up the steps on the mezzanine. There was a guy there. And I walked up to him. He said, you the kid? I said, yeah. I said, I got this. This is for you. He said, wait here. And he disappeared. Then he came back, and he said, wait here, wait a few minutes, and three or four girls came down. I'm talking about one being Grace Kelly. Wow. And I was saying, that's Grace Kelly. And she was young and just, you know, really not known. I I mean, I knew it because Walter Winchell and all of them were always writing about these young people. And so I took them, you know, I didn't walk. I got the cab, and that's when they had those jump seats. So the girl sat on the seat, and I pulled a little jump seat. I'm sitting there. Who was with her? Uh, I, at that time, I didn't know who the other two were. But then another time, I mean, then it became a repeated thing because I would either take them to the Harwin Club or the Latin Quarter or back to the Copa, and then join them. You know, and join uh, Costello, um, Johnny Miller. I remember that Walter uh, Walter Winchell, and that's all these girls wanted to do. They were, you know, they were up and coming thespians and whoever they were and uh, it was a tremendous experience for me and it's ironic because the when I really got to know uh, Grace Kelly which Pat and I made a decision in our book not to put her in that part of my life for a lot of reasons and uh, when I left after the assassination of Kennedy on uh, Costello's orders Mm -hmm. I got on the Independence, and he told me I'd be on U deck, but go through a crew. I had Merchant Marine papers, which I didn't realize what that meant until I got back. Because once you signed on Merchant Marines, it's like being in a, 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 uh, like the Air Force or, or the Army. So I, I, I got on, so I didn't have to show my passport. Oh. So nobody knew I was on board. I was part of crew. When I was a merchant marine as a hairdresser, I was signed on to work in the beauty parlor, which I never went in while I was on the whole cruise. So he said, wait down, wait down in the cruise. And the chief purser, and he did, came down and got me and moved me up to U-Deck. And we were, we were in the harbor yet. And I was never on a ship. I mean, this was ridiculous. I it mean, wasn't like the Staten Island Ferry, huh? No, it wasn't like the ferry at all. And it didn't smell of urine either. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so now I'm, and he shows me this, this wonderful room, 
And uh, what I said in the book, not just now, Costello gave me a, a, a handsome bankroll and let me know that I'd be sitting with the captain every night, which was a privilege to sit at the captain's table. And I did, but obviously Costello knew something I didn't know, which I found out the next day when I woke up. But in the room next to me, after I'm unpacking, I'm hearing these two kids running around on the balcony and all that. And I'm saying, oh no, what is this gonna be? And I said, who are those kids? He's, oh no, 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 don't worry about it. They have a nanny with them, they're just excited. So I go out there and it's Carolyn and Albert, Grace Kelly's kids. I haven't oh seen gosh. her. And we we looked at each other. She knew she knew me. I knew I knew her. But I didn't say nothing because, first of all, I don't know if Rennie was in there. <laughs> I don't know who she was traveling with. And it wasn't until that night. We leave the harbor, and we're going under the Verrazano Bridge, and they make an announcement that John F. Kennedy has been shot. Their president's been shot in Texas. They didn't say he was dead. Mm. So all the harbor boats are coming and picking up all these dignitaries, because this was like a, a 30 day cruise. And I'm saying to myself, because I'm still in my uh, half cocked wild kid's mood, I said, look at this, all the guys are leaving. Look at the, all the women I'm gonna have on this boat, I have to pick a lily. <laughs> <laughs> What you, what you should explain, these were like Wall Street guys. That oh, yeah, I mean. was going to crash, and everybody had to get off that boat. Well, not only that, even if you, I mean, if, if it didn't work, this was society. I mean, these cruises at that time were like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. You know, on these suites up there, I, I was told. I mean, it was ridiculous what they were doing. But these were the guys, obviously, the world was in a crisis. I didn't care who the president got shot. I liked the guy. So, I mean, but I didn't know he was going to, you know, die. Mm -hmm. They didn't say he died until the next morning when we got out, we were out to sea. And then we had a telex newspaper. And I remember, because Tuesday, prior to me leaving, I was in New Orleans with Carlos Masalas, and I had to bring a message to him and an envelope. And he had a message for me. I said, um, I, was, I, I had a, a big plate of pasta vongole, and he knew I loved it. He says, you're not staying, because I was about to sit down, because oh. I used to go there a lot, drop off envelopes. He said, you gotta get back to New York. And I just got there, and when I got there, I had to go to the bathroom. He says, somebody in there, wait a minute, wait at the bar. And this guy came out, I didn't pay attention to him. I bunked into him, actually. And why it's a, a, a significant part of the story is that on the telex the next morning, I bunked into Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh my and then I'm saying to myself, oh my God, don't tell me I was a part of this, which I'm telling you right now, I was like rocked. Ooh. Because first of all, I got to know John F. Kennedy over two years. And I went to the inaugural, Sinatra was the, the, man, the ringmaster. He ran the whole thing, you know, he, he orchestrated. Sinatra orchestrated and created the whole inaugural for John F. Kennedy. Really? Yeah, then right after that is when they got onto bad terms, when he made his brother attorney general, and then... Uh, that's another story. Yeah, that's a whole... Oh, that was another whole story, because even when, years later, 
about a year or two later, he redid his whole house in Palm Springs to accommodate the Secret Service and and on and everything else. And he was waiting for John JFK to come, and he got a message saying he's not coming. And because of you know they had to separate, but um, and then they get back to Grace Kelly, her and I are sitting at the captain's table, and I mean obviously she loved John F. Kennedy, we all did, you know, and it was so somber. So I go, I I had all cash I wanted, so I go to the, the band leader. Because I knew John F. Kennedy, he liked to have a party. And his theme song was High Hopes. And that was his theme song for his whole campaign. Mm-hmm. And even the inaugural, I mean, everybody played High Hopes. So I go to this band leader, he looked like uh, a skinny Paul Whiteman. He had a, a mustache that was thinner than his eyebrows, <laughs> shellacked hair. And I reached in my pocket without showing anybody, because I you know, on the foot of the bandstand, and I had three $100 bells. I said, you know, if you keep playing this kind of music, this whole boat is going to commit suicide tonight. And they're playing sad music. Oh, my right. God, so yeah, solemn. Like a funeral thing. Like a funeral yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I said, I happen to know John F. Kennedy. And he looked at me like, like I had two heads. I mean, he didn't know who the hell I was to begin with. But he saw the three Benjamins on my chest. Uh, for the people who are listening, Benjamin is Ben Franklin. He's on the $100 bills. <laughs> and I said, these are for you. Just play High Hopes. That's his theme song. And he started, you know, very nice. And the whole room, you know, and they started humming it and started singing it. And it put a different, changed the mood. Changed the mood. And, and uh, then uh, <laughs> I'll just say this very politely. And then, you know, every, every, everybody was solemn. They're going back to their, to their room. So I figured, let me make a move. So I got the chief purser on my deck. I said, get me a bottle of Dom Perignon. Because that with Jackie O at the time made Dom Perignon what it was. I don't know if you know that. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, no, she started drinking it. The world drank Dom oh, Perignon. Wow. So I thought, you know, I said, get me two glasses, chill them, and put it on the rail between my suite and Grace Kelly's suite. <laughs> Just put it on the rail. So I go out like anybody else would when it was a very sad night. So I'm sitting out there, and she obviously was on the other side. So we drank a bottle of champagne, and I leave it to your imagination. Oh. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Things people don't know. Yes. Things people Crazy. don't know. Anyway, let, let's let's just back up a little here. Uh, you, you, you had tremendous luck. You're running around the, the streets of Manhattan. Nobody ever bothers you. Nobody tries to take you off for the money. But a truant officer finds you one day. Oh my God, that was another luck of the draw. Talking about an iconic situation, to meet another iconic lady. I, I, was, oh. out, I was right outside of Lindy's, I remember it well, because I was on my way to Toot Shaw's to see Frank after I dropped everything off at the Wyndham Hotel. Just so the people who don't live in New York, the Wyndham Hotel was on 58th Street. So I'd leave 58th Street and go up to 7th Avenue and walk down and Lindy's was between 52nd and 51st, and right around 52nd was to Shaw's. So I'm there, this guy grabs me, and he's like, what, what, are you, what are you not in school for? I said, who are you talking to me? <laughs> and he says, yeah, I had like 10,000 on me. 
So uh, he says, why aren't you in school? I said, I don't go to school. He says, why don't you go to school? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, well, I mean, well, we're not going to tell the guy. I, nobody asked me to go to school, first of all. So he says, uh, where do you live? I said, on Mulberry Street. Because I gave him, you know, I had my mother's address, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he said, I'm going to write you a ticket. I said, a ticket for what? You have to give this to your parents. And if you don't give this to your parents, we'll find you and put you in juvie. I says, what's juvie? <laughs> <laughs> and he thought it was a smart ass. I didn't know what he was talking about. I'm, you know, I'm not talking kid language. I'm talking with these gangsters all my life. Mm-hmm. Juvie. So I take the tickets. Make sure I give it to him. I don't know. You're going to go to juvie. I say, okay. I go to the, and I wait for Frank to stop talking. He says, somebody, you look a little down. I said, some guy can give me a ticket. It's a ticket for what? You don't drive? I said, no, a ticket because I didn't go to school. He said, give me the ticket. I should look at it. He said, you got it. Because, you know, he's dealing with gangsters. Now he's dealing with this. I guess it brought him back to reality. Yeah. This, this guy's not even 16 yet. And he said, I'll take care of it. So the next day I see him. He said, I took care of that ticket for you. I said, great. He said, I enrolled you in school. I said, what? I want to do what I'm doing. He said, oh, you got, you're going to be able to do what you're doing. Don't worry about it. You know where Lindy's is? I said, yeah, I pass it every day. He's upstairs from that is Wilford Academy, a hairdressing academy. I said, they're all funokies up there. What am I going to go up there for? He said, just go there. Ask for this lady. She runs the school. Sign in the morning. And you got to wait till you're 18. I mean, 16. And, you know, so this I was like September. So I had two or three months. So me being my head, where my head was always with women, I go there the next morning. I meet them and I see all these young girls, gorgeous girls. You know, they're 16, 17, 18. Actually want to become their I mean, they want to become beauticians. Mm-hmm. So now I want to go there in a couple of more. I didn't have to be where I had to be for until later. So I'd beat him eight and nine o'clock in the morning, hitting on people, getting girls, because I could take them to the Copa. Do you want to go to the Copa tonight? See Sinatra, they'd say, oh really, the Copa? I said, yeah, I'll take you to the Copa. I had the best seats, best everything. <laughs> and I, you know, I got very lucky there. But what happened is like in October, these two guys come. Mark Sinclair, who was a colorist, for Clairol, you did platform work. I, I, I learned this language from being in high school, I mean, the beauty school. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other guy was called Kenneth. And Kenneth became famous because he was a hairdresser at Lily Dashay, along with Mark Sinclair, until Jackie O gave them the money to open Kenneth's because he was her personal hairdresser. Oh, wow. As she was the president. So these two Fonokis are looking at me. I was very starched. My, you know, I, I'm still that same way. I in my own clothes. Mm-hmm. So I have my little uniform on. And they bring me to Lily Dashay to be a shampoo boy. And I knew how to shampoo, you know, because that's one of the stupid things you learn right away. And then you get into finger waving. Into, <laughs> and then I think the first time I cut somebody's hair, they came out with these wet razors. You were cutting with the hair with razors then. Oh. I took the end of the lady's ear off. They, oh t- they said, no, you, sh- you shouldn't be doing <laughs> hair cutting yeah, anymore. Yeah. And I'm saying. Yeah. You're looking at a shampoo guy from now on. You can't kill anybody. Doing yeah, that. that's it. So anyway, now I go there, and a beautiful place, 
56th Street and Park Avenue, and Lily Dasher was a haberdasher. I mean, like Edith had created great hats, and every woman wore a hat in New York in those days, mm-hmm. everybody. And the second floor was the salon. So you'd stand at attention, like Bellman, <laughs> in a hotel. I mean, I mean, it was classic. And then they'd come, call me to the t- thing, give me the card, never tell you who the customer was. Tell you that this is the rinse color. They had everything. And But when I first got there, the first day, all they did was teach me how to wash hair. I said, I know how to wash hair. This is not the way we do. You have to touch the water, touch it on, the, on your patron's wrist, see if it's the right temperature. Oh. <laughs> Towel it off. Oh, no, these, Excuse me. Oh, yeah, hello. Hey. Oh, you're very fancy. And the maid would take her blouse off, put her in a, uh, uh, a, a smock or something. Right. And then put her in there and put her into the, sh- uh, the basin with a nice towel around her. Then you'd walk in like the surgeon. <laughs> so now I'm in the room. This is my fourth head of hair. I'm in the room. I don't even know how long I'm in the room. Because finally, the lady in the basin says, is there somebody in here? I said, oh, excuse me, excuse me. I was just staring at her. She was like amazing. And I'm saying, I can't believe this. So now I go over and I run the water and get the temperature right, and I do, and she says yes. And now we all know the configuration of a shampoo basin. Right. Right, okay. You're a female, uh, Megan. Mm -hmm. Your father's gonna get mad at me when I (laughs) finds out about the story I'm telling you. So a man's anatomy, I gotta clean this up. Mm -hmm. A man's anatomy is much different than yours. Yes. So when a man is leaning over a lady, in a shampoo basin, my anatomy happens to be on her shoulder. Oh. <laughs> and I start massaging her scalp because they said she liked a hard massage. So I'm massaging her. She's moaning, and I'm fantasizing that I'm making love to this lady. And at this time, at this time, you have no idea who this is. Well, I, 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 yeah, no, I, I was getting very close to knowing who it was because I'm looking and I said, can't be, and it's, it can't be, and it is Marilyn Monroe. And I have an erection. I must be sticking her in her ear by now. And she keeps moaning. And I'm saying to myself, how am I going to get out of this? Because I have this wonderful tight uniform on. Now I'm supposed to towel dry her hair and walk her through the salon. Oh, lovely. <laughs> and I'm saying the rosary, I'm saying the our father's trying to get my mind off of this thing. Oh. I can't get rid of it, I'm a young, young guy. I'm 15 years old. I just washed Marilyn Monroe's hair. Not only that, I just watched her, because that's when Paramount was open 24 hours a day, and some like it hot. Oh, yeah. And I masturbated every night in that right. balcony how many times <laughs> watching that movie. And now I'm with her, forget about it. It was unbelievable. See, that's not in the book. We no, we can't, that. no. We got to, you know, we, <laughs> we, gotta, we wrote a Bible and then a book. Look, <laughs> we have to continue this because you had, you had a history and she was, she was quite a lady. People didn't realize oh my God, that she wasn't man. the person that they saw on the screen. She was an entirely different person. And an abused and used lady. And they yeah, took well, and they took care. Yeah, they took yeah. advantage of her uh, emotions and feelings. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into the, the next episode. Will be about Marilyn and what this poor woman went through between 
the people she had to work with and the wise guys and the Kennedys. And she had the hell of a life. Oh, my God, yeah. So we'll, uh, and, and, and you were part of it. Right too. I mean, right, unfortunately and unfortunately, I was with her the last three days of her life. Then they they took her away, and the, after those two days, she was dead. Yeah, well, let's get get to that uh, in the next episode. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, it's been interesting. The time went, man. We've been doing this almost an hour. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, I hope all of you out there are finding it as interesting as we are. I'm, 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 you know, I'm reminiscing and recollecting things that it's hard to believe that I witnessed all this, and it's my pleasure to share with you every week. So tell your friends, Hollywood Godfather Podcast, man. Yeah, subscribe also. Oh yeah. Leave us, leave us a review. Oh yeah, please. Any questions? If you want, if you want uh, a personal answers to your questions, send emails, and we will answer every email. That's not X-rated. Yes, definitely. All right, yeah. Well, why not X-rated? Why? When did that come in? Already getting there, basically. It is, uh, it'll happen. I've, no, any questions that you have, that's what we're here for. In the last segment of every show, uh, once uh, we start getting questions from uh, from you guys, we will. Uh, and Megan, just, Megan's going to read them. Megan's going to be you, and we're going to answer those questions. <laughs> Unless you have one for Megan, then I'll be. You right. and asking her. <laughs> All right. We'll have a whole system. Right. Well, we're signing off again. Thank you for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. And remember, subscribe. Good night. Wine colored days, warm by the sun, deep velvet nights. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Email Gianni Russo with your questions, comments, and for information regarding his motivational speaking appearances to Gianni at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com. Email Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments to Patrick at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com and visit Amazon.com for a listing of books he has written. I'm Megan Horan. I can be emailed at Megan at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com and would enjoy hearing from you. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. But most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails. Good night.